Good evening, everyone. Well, Fred's on his way and said to start. And so you're not all just sitting there like dogs being shown a card trick. Here goes. The author of our manuscript says, the question, what does it mean to hold a concept of God, can be understood quite independent of institutional religion and doctrine. It might end up being how an entire culture interprets its own history and origins, but as populations merge and cultures become increasingly heterogeneous, we need to look at what individuals count as the ground of meaning and purpose in their life. Individuals whose perception of what is right and good may be drawn exclusively from secular sources, sources of meaning that might function as God, or perhaps replace the concept of God represented in institutional religion. any period of human history, there's no reason to think people couldn't hold strictly personal concepts of meaning and purpose, or symbols of value arise from within the individual, or from confronting a world of conflicting religious meaning, or from the secular world. Historically, this seems to have occurred in periods where there's been great cultural interchange, increased exposure to religious beliefs and faith traditions foreign to one's native soil, experience of religious competition among faith traditions, the phenomena of inconsistent religious claims being made upon one's soul that are filtered through an individual's own apparatus of evolving values, where individually generated beliefs naturally arise. The direct experience of a pluralism of religious faith results in individuals coming to understand value and purpose in their lives, first, on their own, and second, in quite different ways. Well, today's world of the United States of America is the most religiously diverse country in the world, 
We are a nation of religious pluralism. The Hellenistic period had many characteristics of such a world of cultural and religious competition. After the conquests of the Near East by Alexander the Great at the end of the fourth century BCE, an emerging Hellenized world extended from India all the way back through Egypt. This world brought about great movements of people back and forth, east and west. As a result, people of differing religious practices and worldviews came into direct contact with one another. Eventually, the process merged people into sharing a common language of Greek and a semblance of culture. But the individual, no longer self-identified as a citizen of a particular city-state, was now thrust into being a citizen of the world. Religious concerns shifted from worship and devotion to local gods of the city-state to a person's individual fate in a now greatly expanded cosmos. The corresponding atmosphere was one of intense competition among itinerant cult preachers and older established faith traditions. Amidst the clamor, newly minted world citizens increasingly became concerned about how salvation applied to their individual fate and what was their own status in some possible afterlife. You might say the process was one of homogenizing and dehomogenizing. Exemplifying the former for self-preservation, Jewish culture in intense dialogue with Hellenistic culture translated Hebrew scripture into Greek, producing the Septuagint. For the latter, one can point to the emergence of diverse Gnostic myths that coalesce in the late first century CE and persisting past the second century where they were perceived as a threat to the growing Christian movement. Gnostic refers to a whole collection of ancient philosophies in which followers shunned what they saw as an imperfect material world and sought a path to oneness with God based on secret knowledge, gnosis, knowledge in the form of mystical insight that could liberate a divine spark within them, believers who search for their own private wisdom. Many Gnostic practices were common among early Christians themselves, but they were also a part of Neoplatonic mystery religions that competed with Christianity in the first centuries. One particular Gnostic myth originated in Syria, Iraq, and Egypt. It is found in Mandaean hymns, in the long drawn out lamentations of the Pistis Sophia, Pistis Sophia meaning faith and wisdom. The myth also appears in the fantasies of the Christian Gnostic theologian Valentinus, who describes adventures of the erring Sophia, Sophia Prunicos, Sophia the prostitute. Let me describe the story. It is one of my favorite parts of the manuscript, especially how it makes the individual believer now an active participant in the salvation of the entire cosmos. And this is possible through renewing our moral and ethical relationships with one another. The myth involves a precosmic fall. Before creation of the world, there occurred a primordial shattering within the Godhead, a rift 
that caused the divine tragedy and the necessity for human salvation. A broken cosmos itself arises from this precosmic fall. In the dynamics of the salvation myth, the primordial being's broken fragments must be reunited. God must be healed. And individual human salvation is wrapped up within the process of divine salvation as a cosmic event. There's a sense in which the salvation of the entire cosmos depends on individual salvation. In mythic primordial time before creation of the world, the very act of self-reflection causes God's own thought, divine wisdom, to be cast out from the divine light, cast out to the outer reaches of the universe. God's mere reflection on his own divine wisdom becomes a tragic event in which the primordial being is now broken apart. The created world comes into being through this precosmic fall, and thus the created world is a broken world because our world is radically separated from God, a God who for human life has now become alien, remote, and inaccessible. In this story, God's divine wisdom is personified as Sophia, a harlot discovered in a brothel in the city of Tyre. The salvation of the world is the history of the saving of Sophia. Sophia must be brought out of a world of darkness and dissolution. She must find a path back to God, work her way back through archons, rulers of a kingdom of darkness, as in Manichaean thought, the enemies of light in humanity. Archons symbolize the barriers to reuniting Sophia with God, of making God one again, one with wisdom. So Sophia is this strange figure who arises out of the night, deserted and left alone in the darkness and the void. Sophia is alone, Yet it is through Sophia's suffering and struggle to find a way back to the God from which she came that the salvation of the world depends. Sophia, of course, is also a metaphor for ourselves. Sophia personifies human wisdom that has become disconnected from God, the absence of true wisdom in the human soul. So the question of what we are and what true wisdom is are bound together. Humanity has become preoccupied with how to gain wisdom. Wisdom is perceived as like a counting house in which you add up your bits of knowledge. The more bits of stuff in your counting house, the wiser you are. But there is another picture of wisdom, Gnostics proclaimed, a secret wisdom. And I believe this has to do with our ethical relations with one another and our moral lives. Of course, there was a lot of ritual paraphernalia attached to being initiated into that secret wisdom. I don't know about the prostitute part, but I do identify with the divine wisdom. True wisdom reveals the contradiction of how male humanity sees women as something separate, foreign, exotic maybe, but alien. But it's through women God interacts with humanity. We bear men's children, we are the openness and trust in which humans can be in communion with each other when acts of love are acts of communion. Bentha, 
You are wise beyond your years, beautiful and wise. You are quite right. Women bear humanity to one another by bringing them into the world. But don't forget, also by dispatching them from the world, as many Greeks found out in their war with Troy. In any case, there are good reasons for distinguishing any potential concept of God from its representation in institutional religion. Why should one not think that people come to hold strictly personal concepts that symbolize their core value, their meaning and purpose? Young people in America, and especially Europe, have not given up their spiritual lives, but they increasingly refuse to identify their God with anything like the Yahweh of Judaism, or Jesus as God-man, or with Allah, or anything like that including the God in which our nation trusts. That God may be dead, as Thomas Altizer wrote. You could think of the phenomena of highly individualized concept of God as just a newfound freedom for self-definition, but it also signifies a broad critique of or profound disinterest in what mainstream institutional religion has to offer, revealing underlying problems institutional religion manifests that may account for the rise of highly individualized spirituality and concepts of God. When you acknowledge the full range of ethnic and racial diversity that increasingly characterizes America's citizens, the dominant religious institutions may no longer be mainstream Catholic, Protestant, Jewish denominations. New edges of human religiousness are expressed on the one hand in the passionate fervor of immigrant enthusiast churches, often Pentecostal churches, which become the home and the center of cultural identity for fragile groups of new citizens from Haiti, Central America, Brazil, and on the other hand, there are quite eclectic and individualized forms of religiousness in youth who draw their spiritual identities from wholly secular sources, from virtual reality experience of the digital world rather than the dogma and doctrines of America's institutional religions, where ideas of God emerge just as easily from death metal music, from Viking Iraq, from the Assassin's Creed, as from the Apostles' Creed. Just look at the evidence. For the past quarter century, there has been a precipitous drop in regular Sunday worship attendance in mainstream churches, significant drops in actual membership as well. For example, over a three-year period in the early 2000s in New Bedford, Massachusetts, membership in a historically robust and recently renovated Episcopal church dropped from over 600 to less than 200, and membership was on the way down, Sunday service attendance barely numbering in the teens. This drop in institutional church participation is not unique to any one denomination. It's common across the board for mainstream churches and synagogues, including Roman Catholic churches, which have a long history with the Portuguese-speaking fishing community in New Bedford or in nearby Brockton, Massachusetts, where there were once six Jewish synagogues, now there are none. What underlying problems of institutional religion account for the rise of highly individualized spiritualities and concepts of God? We can hear them play out in collections of personal family experiences. 
narratives connecting the individual with their evolving development of personal symbols of value, independent of any institutional religion preaching about God. We will hear some of those stories. But there are also problems institutional religions face of their own making. First, institutional religion is a human phenomenon. Its claims naturally serve human agendas or their consequences. You get to escape eternal punishment after death by accepting dogmatic utterances serving as mechanisms of control. You enjoy fantasies of self-aggrandizement based on dubious prosperity gospels, perpetuate bias and racial hatred through allegiance to political party agendas with religious-based class divisions. Historically, institutional religion has served as a vehicle for dividing people in democracies, as James Madison believed. In non-democratic states, institutional religion may itself cause oppressive social control when it becomes coextensive with dictatorial authority that exercises racial and ethnic violence, where divisive religious morality simply hijacks secular morality. Second is what follows from institutional religions not adequately dealing with contradictory claims among themselves, perhaps understandably, but also within each tradition required religious behavior that is justified on the basis of revealed or authoritative scripture masks the fact that texts on which such doctrines are based are often themselves inconsistent, incoherent, even unethical. Now, the liberal view that all religious faiths are true in their own way may have a certain appeal but it ignores the fact that religious doctrines claiming universal truth contradict one another, or where the existential security provided is at the cost of followers no longer pursuing unanswered questions. As one example, the Baltimore Catechism's answer to what is the Trinity is, we cannot fully understand it. This is a supernatural mystery. Indeed, the increasing visibility of mutually contradictory doctrines among faith traditions may suggest all faith claims are ultimately bogus. Religion itself is incoherent myth and should be avoided. And that sharp reduction in attendance at mainstream institutional churches will likely apply to ethnic-based churches as those populations cease to be marginalized by their local communities. Third, institutional religion has not found a mode of contemporary language or metaphor that is clarifying rather than obscuring. Religious language by its very nature balances on the edge of meaningfulness, as Kierkegaard has pointed out, so one route to escape that dilemma has institutional religions diverting deeper religious concerns to practical worries about rules of conduct or the business of running a church or the political leanings of its members rather than what arises from pure contemplation of meaning in the universe. Religion shuns its own deepest dilemmas 
Its leaders support that by adopting a two-domain view, where religion stands apart from science in a protected world. Fourth, core values of people, especially at crisis points in their lives, are formed and acted upon on the basis of their individual experience of those crises. These values may be formed utterly independent of the teachings and practice of churches with which they may have been associated, or as a reaction they have faced a priest who will not baptize their child, or won't marry certain couples because of what their religious doctrine dictates. We're talking about deep personal values that arise out of coming to terms with divorce, raising a difficult child, with long-term illness, or the unexpected loss of a family member, where out of necessity people learn to trust the validity of their own introspection. Pastors complain of the relentless movement of people away from the churches, but without realizing they contribute to that movement. Perhaps the deepest values require having to think for oneself. Seneca cynically remarked, religion is regarded by common people as true, by rulers as useful, and by the wise as false. Of course, if it is with caution that one treats all institutional religion together as if there were consistently shared problems or core concepts, this applies to individual concepts of meaning and value as well. All aspects of this analysis are not equally defensible. Not equally defensible indeed, James. Perhaps there are things different institutional religions share, even across time and across traditions beneath our view. In fact, I have someone here who thinks that is the case. You remember Wallace Wu? Wally Wu? A relative of Shenzhong Wu? Yeah, the woman back in 1949 devised experiments providing evidence of quantum entanglement. This ruled out EPR. Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen's belief in hidden variables to account for quantum relations over vast distances. This led to Bell's theorem and Nobel Prize for Alan Aspect or Closer, Anton Zeliger. Their experiments with entangled photons established violation of Bell inequalities, which pioneered quantum information science based on entanglement. This woman in 1956 also showed weakly interacting particles inside the nucleus of an atom do not behave symmetrically like the rest of the universe. She made other experiments challenging principle of parity with spin of cobalt-60 during radioactive decay. You remember Wallen Wu? I sure do. Wallen, tell us what you found. Well, I read this most interesting article, and I found in some cases there do appear intriguing similarities of concern across institutional religious traditions. For example, even for traditions as different in time and theology as Taoism and Christianity, the Tao Te Ching has been fascinating to many in the Christian West because of several striking parallels between it and the New Testament. In the New Testament, for example, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, it says, 
do good to them which hate you. The Tao Te Ching, section 63, requite hatred with virtue. In the New Testament, Gospel of Mark, chapter 26, they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Tao Te Ching, number 42, the violent man shall die a violent death. New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, Except ye become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Tao Te Ching, number 10. In controlling your vital force to achieve gentleness, can you become like the newborn child? New Testament, Mark, chapter 9. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. Tao Te Ching, number 7. The sage puts himself last and finds himself in the foremost place. Of course, it could hardly be argued that the Taoist sage is an analog, let alone identical, with Jesus of Nazareth as Christ and God-man. The Taoist sage seeks a relationship with nature that leaves no trace, while Jesus sought to transform the world, creating a new heaven, new earth. Nevertheless, there are these striking shared concerns and even quite parallel expressions in the religious language through which those concerns are expressed. And what about where there are historical reasons to identify the reference of the concept of God across traditions such as the God of Abraham of ancient Israel, God as appropriated by Jews and Christians and with Allah of Islamic faith, Yes, but even here the sense of the concept is ultimately quite different, and that is despite the desire of some religious leaders to claim the same God is worshipped by Jews and Christians, and that according to Pope Francis, or by Muslims, based on the biblical story in the Quran in which when Jacob asks his sons whom they'll worship after his death, and they reply, we will worship the God of your fathers, Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac. He is the God. There are still significant differences in what the term God means in each case. For example, the Christian Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. That is hardly what the Jew or Muslim has in mind in uttering Yahweh is one in the Jewish Shema or Allah Akbar, I testify there is no God but Allah in the prayer Salah. Thus to say that Jews, Christians, and Muslims worship the same God is not the same as insisting that there is an agreed upon and shared understanding of God and what it means to use that concept in worship or in prayer. In order to insist on cross-tradition identity of the concept, uh, Perhaps the best one can say is that to define God in any particular way is impossible, that theology must depend on a via negativa where God is necessarily greater than anything one could conceive or imagine, that however you imagine God, God is other than that, like the Hindu, neti, neti. Brahma is not this not that. 
the intention of asking the question, what does it mean to hold the concept of God, seems to direct one to the core of an individual's reflective value that arise in the course of their wrestling with the origins of meaning. These values may be shared or not by the family in which an individual life is embedded, However incomplete or partial, these values constitute an individual's attempt to discover their own ground, their own relation to ultimate reality. In specific, concrete form, these individual spiritual maps are not limited by any institutional religion with which the individual may have been connected. They may reflect a religious tradition but just as easily present a picture set directly in opposition to that tradition. These investigations uncover a sense of ultimate meaning that seeks understanding why it does arise, under what circumstances, what it looks like when some particular event orients all other values in one's life. And so the investigations draw on two primary means to elicit this. First, direct narratives of personal experience. These are naturally limited by access to individuals willing to share their most private, interdirected struggles with meaning in their lives. And second, comparative analyses of broad conceptual models that symbolize how fundamental interactions with the world are perceived by both individuals and cultures. So first, narratives individual narratives that recount the origins of value-generating experience. These accounts express the oral tradition of lived religion. By lived religion is meant spiritual, religious, quasi-religious, even secular structures of meaning as they come to exist in the actual lives of individuals as they are expressed in personal stories and shared oral recollections in which those values are embedded. The symbols, mythic figures, ritual events, other experiential phenomena described in these anecdotes constitute an individual's private hierarchy of meaning and import. These meanings arise, evolve, become, or fail to become understood, when they are shared and passed on to others, retold in whole or in part, not only within family structures, but with the local community and from one generation to the next. The value of individual accounts of religious meaning competes with the standard sociological assumption that it is visible faith traditions that most consistently establish religious and spiritual values in a given society. The growing reason to question this assumption is recognizing that increasingly since late 20th century, young people across diverse societies express perceptions of the world uniquely their own often conflicting with dominant religious doctrines of the culture in which they live. This occurs within families that actively participate in a particular faith tradition, as well as those outside any formal religion. Beliefs in spiritual practices of overarching significance for young adults born after 1980 are increasingly based on the circumstances and events of their own lives. 
Such values that come to exist may never have been based on the doctrines or formal beliefs of any religious institution. The author of the manuscript entertains the hypothesis that significant adaptive beliefs and values arise in experience that occurs at the boundaries of meaning in lives, the liminal conditions of birth, growth, marriage, divorce, illness, death. The qualifier adaptive acknowledges that certain beliefs may derive from interactions with existing faith traditions, but these are frequently as competing personal values and beliefs. So to sort among origins, one looks to determine where oral accounts of boundary life experiences are based on independent layers of meaning. And so analysis is contingent on the narrator's ability to be objective and the hearer's ability to filter sources based on the context of the narrator's self-reflection. Consider one previously proposed definition of religion, those ritual practices, ethical and communal beliefs, and spiritual structures of meaning that bind together a culture as it addresses the boundaries of experience, birth, growth, and development, illness, death. Rather than seeing religion as that which shapes and preserves society, such a definition supports the view that religion itself is also shaped by structures and values within a society, including and especially structures of meaning based on the experience of individuals. Religion's dual status with respect to society is as both transforming, but also itself something transformed. The phrases structures of meaning ultimate values, core values, need elucidation. And one context of their use looks at the critical allegiances an individual counts on to make decisions under conditions of crisis in their personal life or in the life of their family, when they must make ethical decisions under duress, when moral judgments are made in the heat of the moment. How such decisions are made has been modeled in a course in medical ethics taught to emergency medicine personnel, doctors, EMTs, paramedics. The course provides a framework for understanding issues in medical ethics and a decision process to enable EMTs to exercise correct critical judgments in the flow of actual trauma and medical emergencies. The context include instances of mass casualty, child abuse, child death, line of duty death, the ambiguous behavior and assessments, DNR, suicide, and so forth. The first part of the course outlines an ethical framework to develop a personal decision process. That includes four factors. First, what are the elements of ethical decisions? Empirical evidence. What are symbols of loyalty and obligation? Your personal and cultural beliefs modes of ethical reasoning. The second factor is the relevance of competing ethical theories to the context of EMS services, normative ethics, teleological ethics, ethical assertions that are based on popular assumptions. The third factor are what are the criteria for your actions, good or bad, dealing with competing goods, what's useful versus what's expedient. 
And fourth, what are the criteria for responsibility, individual over against the organization you were part of, administrative versus policy? It also examines relevant existing codes of ethics, the Hippocratic Oath, the EMT Code, the American Nursing Association's Code, American Medical Association's Code, and accepted bioethical values, including autonomy, beneficence, confidentiality, non-malfeasance, access to resources, personal integrity. The second part selects important specific issues in medical ethics that impact EMS services, trauma, abuse and neglect, infant death, line of duty death, standing orders, consent, confidentiality, dealing with patients with special challenges. And here participants discuss how they develop a personal decision process for making appropriate medical and ethical judgments. How they consider, first of all, distinguishing fact from value, how they prioritize them, how they clarify their concepts of what persons or groups or what medical conditions are involved, how they validate their grounds for what's fair, how they decide among competing beliefs and loyalties. And it also considers various tools that exist that are helpful to EMS when medical and ethical decisions must be made under pressure, including ways to buy time for deliberation without doing harm, the use of the impartiality test, the universalizability test, the justifiability test, analysis of why prioritization is important. Now, what's the relevance of a course like this? First, in recognizing that expressions of meaning and value, religious expressions, often push meanings of words beyond their limit. We've spoken about how words in scripture or myth expressing belief, in ritual enacting belief, in theology explaining belief, frequently balance on the edge of meaningfulness. So the intention of a course like this is to bring core values and expressions of values into the context of extreme lived experience in a way in which their meaningfulness can be tested, tested and brought within the framework of human behavior in which medical and ethical decisions must be made made with some level of objective fairness and compassion for those involved as both patients and treaters. An example of the strengths and limitations of testing ethical principles against a context of constantly changing empirical data can be seen in a study identifying ethical values for triage decisions by an Italian ethical committee using Delphi methodology. Delphi methodology is an iterative participatory process among experts for exchanging views and arguments on ethical issues in order to seek consensus. Here, process goals such as transparency and decision-making compete with values representing fairness and the autonomy of the individual and those set against changing data, counting the number of lives saved or life years saved. Under such conditions of duress, values had to be accessed in order to make decisions that formal religions may sometimes be hard pressed to answer. 
That is not to say that religious practitioners had nothing to say to doctors or others who must make such decisions, but even on a model such as the healing ministry of Jesus, a religious view may inaccurately assume that medical decision makers will use only objective medical criteria and that it is up to pastors to ensure all persons deserve equal respect for their dignity and that triage processes incorporate respect for autonomy of both patient and professional. The criteria for such values don't require religious faith to be articulated. At the same time, such values, both secular and religious, may be present in both doctors and pastors. So that's one way to think about testing the meaningfulness of core values. Can they function in a context of forced medical and ethical decisions? Now, what about narratives of individual life experiences in which the structures of meaning and values are formed? These are the orally transmitted accounts told from individual to individual, repeated within families, shared within communities. To elicit such accounts, the manuscript looks to techniques drawn from anthropology and field ethnography methods that seek to sound out perceptions of social values, including political problems, religious issues, directly from individuals and groups involved. Insights not obtained through indirect means like formal surveys. The methodology is anecdotal. People tell it like it is in their own terms, using their own words and concepts. To reach people in the actual context of how religious meaning exists in their lives, anecdotes are not based on an interview. Rather, they are free responses to general open-ended questions like, tell me an experience that exemplifies your deepest values, one you might pass on to your family, your children, your closest friends. The manuscript provides numerous oral accounts acquired over the course of several decades, uh, an oral traditions project. Subjects were free to respond in any way they chose or free to stop and leave the encounter at any time. They were simply encouraged to speak about their most meaningful or problematic personal and family experiences. The idea was to uncover how an individual's values actually arise in the context of their lived experience rather than as secondary intellectualizations. Subjects were anonymous. A three-layer process removed any potentially identifying information of either subject or story prompter. Let me share a couple of these stories. One account expresses a common theme of feeling disembodied and seeing light at the end of a tunnel in a near-death experience. What is striking about it, however, is the supreme importance the person assigns to reuniting with relatives rather than any possible desired post-mortem state. It's as if the significance of reuniting with relatives and personal acquaintances replaced any overarching need to hold some centralizing concept of meaning like God. The individual was a white female, mid-40s, 
recalling an event that occurred in her early 20s. Pantha, the experience reminds me of one you once recounted for yourself. Would you read it? Okay. I had a near-death experience. I was in a serious accident and was pronounced dead on the scene. When I woke up, I was outside my body, looking down at it from above. I saw medical people working on me and saw what bad shape my body was in. When I was out of my body, I didn't have any attachment to the body. I felt free from all physical body limitations. I was floating in thin air. I had poor eyesight during my life, but up there I could see a hundred feet. I started to float upwards towards the sky. A dark circle appeared and I knew that I had to go in there. I traveled into a tunnel that was all dark. Then I saw a tiny light at the end and I started moving extremely fast, faster than anything on earth we could experience. I got closer and closer to this light. As I got closer, I felt a warm, peaceful, calm, a loving feeling as I was bathed in light. I cannot describe this in our language, but it was wonderful. All the while, I was questioning what was happening. Was I dead? I felt alive. This experience seemed so real. I continued on and went into the light. On the other side of that light, the vast beauty and brilliance was incredible. There were pristine mountain ranges. The air was warm, but not too hot or too cold, just right. The colors of the meadows from all the different types of flowers were laid out in front of me. They were colors so magnificent they can't be described or known in our earthly life. It was awesome and amazing. I started walking across the field. I saw beings at the bridge. I instantly recognized them and knew it was my grandmother and my aunt. They were so happy to see me and looked young and vibrant. My grandmother looked young and beautiful and my aunt looked the same but more vibrant. They spoke, but it wasn't like we talked to our mouths, but through telepathy, mind to mind. They knew what was being said and what to say instantaneous. I felt that my knowledge was expanded. I said to them, what is this place? And they said, home. They asked me if I wanted to stay here or go back to Earth and get my life back. At first I said I wanted to stay and be here with you guys. But they kept asking me if I wanted to go back. I then decided that I still had more to do on Earth and that I knew I would be back soon. When I made that decision, I was then pulled downward and slammed back into my body. I heard the doctor say, we got her back. I was very upset because the amount of pain I was in, but happy I had a second chance. The recovery was hard because I shattered my hip and legs. I had to relearn how to walk. I recovered and now I can walk fine today. The doctors were amazed at my full recovery because of the amount of damage to my lower body. I look at life completely different. No material things matter anymore. But what I focus on is love in my life with my friends and my family. The image of the bridge as a place of reuniting with loved ones will be familiar to those who have lost beloved pets. In a second account, the subject was actually drawn back 
to the dominant institutional religion of his culture, but now a highly idiosyncratic version of it. This was done solely for solidifying family connections, not on the basis of any particular religious claims or practices of that tradition. The individual was male, late 20s, with Asian parents, but born in the USA. I joined the Marines and was shipped to Iraq where I had a spiritual experience that changed my life. My unit was running a convoy through Fallujah when a bomb went off to my right. I was thrown out of the Humvee and landed on my neck, twisting it. I was knocked unconscious. I didn't know what happened at the time, but now know that a car bomb had gone off only about 10 feet from me. When I woke up, my friends had put me on a sheet and were running back to the base camp. I saw their lips moving, but I couldn't hear them. I just knew they weren't going to leave me. I didn't feel any pain, but when I came to, I felt a great sense of peace come over me. I just knew I would be fine at that point. It is hard to describe exactly what happened, but I know that something was looking out for me. I got treatment, and they learned my neck and back weren't broken as they probably should have been, but my collarbone was. I suffered a lot of nerve damage in my left arm. When I got home, I asked my girlfriend to marry me. I no longer take anything for granted. I enjoy life much more. I am looking into my culture more and more. My own understanding of Buddhism may become part of it. When I left home, my parents started practicing again, and I want to join them somehow. I'm not currently practicing any formal religion. I will probably be forced to retire from the Marines because of the injuries I sustained, but I will still work for them repairing weapons. I don't think a Buddhist would do something like that, but my kind would. Well, we all don't have near-death experiences, James. Is there no development of ultimate values for poor, boring folks like the rest of us? Indeed there are, and I can share a story or two with you next time. Station XRTM signing off the air.